Welcome to Horror Makes Us Happy, the podcast where we ask the question, what is it about horror that makes us happy? Your hosts are myself, uh, Chris Whitman, and Steve Becker. And you can find more out about us at our website, horrormakesushappy.com. Sorry, I'm still on my second cup of coffee this morning slash afternoon. <laughs> Before we get started, a little information for you and listeners. Here are your trigger warnings. Uh, we're going to be talking about horror movies, horror content, dark and macabre things, which could involve anything from murder, rape, suicide, child abuse. There will be F-bombs, Z-bombs, G-bombs, D-bombs, and all kinds of bombs. So no, you bombs. And... and also Jaeger bombs, yes. Oh, you got Jaeger? Somewhere. <laughs> Sorry. So, yes, uh, if all that shit is okay with you, then prepare for us to say shit and fuck and uh, talk about some really morbid stuff. But if not, maybe, you know, uh, think about it and then come back when you're ready. Anyway, with all that said, today's guest is Bill Obers Jr. Uh, he is an actor and... Writer? Was it writer? I am so prepared for this. Actor, actor, producer, writer. Best known for Three from Hell, Circus of the Dead, Scream Queens, and Criminal Minds. Yes. And Dis, which is a wonderful film that I, um, full disclosure, sorry, I, I uh, have had for a while, but apparently the DVD doesn't like my DVD player. I think I got a region wrong one. Um, but I looked it up on IMDb just before this interview and noticed it's, it's also on Tubi, so I started watching it. I will definitely sit down and watch that with full 100% attention later because, God damn, that movie looks awesome. Tell me which one that is. What was it? Which one was it? Yes. D-I-S? D-I-S, yes. You have started off well, my friend. That's yeah. um, <laughs> my, favorite, my favorite type of movie to make are the ones that most people will say either I couldn't watch that or I didn't understand it, mm-hmm. which is why I'm a cult actor. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was a charitable <laughs> way of saying boy you make some strange stuff but um we made this down in mexico and we shot it at uh it's set in this sort of perhaps in hell asylum and we shot it on the side of an old asylum which was up on a hill we had to hike up there with cameras on burrows um it was physically grueling <laughs> the the director is very into um uh dante and literary mm-hmm. references and so it's a it's a very personal vision of hell uh-huh. uh, it was really really hard to make and most people w- when the first scene comes on they say no i'm not gonna do that <laughs> yeah the first scene is very visceral it's um it definitely yeah. grabs your attention like I, I was just engrossed in it thinking that the film had started and then i realized that's the intro because it rolls the title credit it's like oh but well, that's that's how you start I'm, okay. glad, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you did. That's, those are the, I make other types of things to make money to live, but those yeah. are the ones that are closest to my heart are the ones where the director is really trying to make an artistic statement. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And I kind of caught that early on too, like uh, in the, I think it was a flashback scene in black and white where you're talking with a friend and he says, welcome to the underworld. Yes. My immediate first thought was, wait a minute, is this whole thing going to be an allegory for someone's transition into hell? Yeah, and the interesting thing, and I'd be interested after you've uh, watched it to know when you think my character died, or was he ever alive? Yeah, maybe his um, seclusion venture off into the woods is is purgatory, and him going through the woods is his acceptance of hell. I'm getting too far into it. I haven't finished it, so I'm I'm going to watch it first. I've I've gotten mail from people who had very uh, different opinions, or my opinion on that different from the director. It's very interesting. Okay. We may have to do a second interview after this one. 
But yes, um, this is not necessarily going to be so much about your works, which are awesome so far, but I've seen once again. Uh, this is more of an interview to get at the root of what it is uh, you like about horror, what it is that interests you, or what it is that uh, disinterests you, just all things. What you're a fan horror. of. Yeah, what, what you're a fan of. Uh, we're going to be coming at the interview from three different angles, going through sets of questions from childhood, adolescence, and adulthood to find out what it is about horror that you like. Idea being that sometimes, you know, if you go through one phase and then the next phase, you, you don't remember about something until later on you can go back to it. Like, oh, I, yeah, actually, there was, there was this one thing that happened. Um, but yes, all that being said, uh, this is not meant to be a therapy session. So if there's any kind of questions we ask that you don't want to answer, you can just say pass. That's too bad because I... <laughs> I don't do therapy, but I've always been intrigued. So I'm really sorry. To the opportunity. <laughs> you can have a taste of it. <laughs> I, I do therapy for other people. It's very strange when you're in the public eye, people will watch a performance. And if you do weird culty stuff, they'll feel that they have um, a very personal connection. And actually you, you, you don't because you haven't met them. It's not that you might not develop one, but you just don't know them. And then they will write you with these very, very personal um, things and they're looking for feedback. And so you, yeah, in my business, you become a, a, a bit of a therapist because people feel that they know you. They feel yeah, close yeah. to you. A lot of people can't separate the actor from the character. That too. So starting with childhood, what were some of your earliest memories of scary things? Scary things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I was raised in a rural small area, so I wasn't afraid of the outside. I wasn't afraid of the woods. I love to walk in the woods. Um, I wasn't afraid of the dark. I was not a popular child at all. And I think that, what I feared more than anything else was what actually happened was being ostracized mm -hmm. uh, because of the way I looked, uh, because of my predilections for reading rather than sports, um, my interest in studying. And yeah, I was today a kid like me would be actually probably celebrated. Hmm. But, you know, this was. 55 years ago when I was born. And so back then, you know, I was, let's say, I was the fat kid, the smart kid, the ugly kid, and the sissy kid all together in one kid. So, yeah, that's what I, that's what I feared was being ostracized. And that's why I started entertaining. As to the things that would traditionally be considered scary, I embraced them and loved them, particularly monsters, because monsters were, they were me. Mm -hmm. I, I really, uh, um, felt an affinity with them. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I love the monsters, but I wasn't afraid of, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't afraid of any of the things that you're supposed to be afraid of. I was just afraid of being alone. Yeah. I'd say it's a fairly natural and, uh, and normal fear, uh, aside from monsters and everything at, at that age, you know, because you're, you're right. The, it's in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. One of one of the first things that you want is acceptance. So yeah. to one day have that notion enter your head of, oh wait, people may not accept me. It's it's kind of terrifying, at a, especially at a young age. Because it is. Um, I physically, you know, I had uh, this uh, accident which left scarring and facial reconstruction. I had bad acne. 
I have a weird uh, body with this very um, strange pronounced rib cage. And so it's never going to be considered uh, attractive to look at. And then I had a strange personality too. So yeah, it's not until later on in life that you realize that it's really good to be different. Yeah. Um, it's unique. And now I quite like it. I quite like it. But uh, yeah, my kid self didn't. Yeah. Hmm. Understandably so. It sounds like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, based on your experiences of growing up and, and dealing with the reality of who you were, um, I'm willing to bet that you probably had already started experiencing some of that stuff before you even really knew about many of the monsters. Uh, and I'm guessing you probably knew about the world before you knew about those stories. Does that make sense? It's, yeah, it absolutely does. So the stories, uh, once I began to, uh, and for me, that was through famous monsters magazine because we didn't even have video then mm-hmm. uh, there's no opportunity to see these films, but I started reading about them. Thanks to Forrest J. Ackerman, God bless his soul. Uh, and, and they only reinforce my understanding of the world. Um, particularly the Phantom of the Opera resonated with me and, uh, Ooh, yeah. and, uh, the Karloff Frankenstein, um, because both of neither one of them asked to be as they were, mm-hmm. and they were both rejected for what they were. And they responded the way that anyone will respond when you tell them what you are is not, um, is not, uh, allowed and will not be embraced. They'll become monsters. Mm-hmm. One of the questions we often ask is for kids who are exposed to horror. Did you know that it was supposed to be entertaining? Um, no. And that's what I was going to say is in your case, it sounds more like um, more of a life lesson for you. I think. Yeah. They were my friends uh, and I wanted to experience what they experienced. Uh, as soon as I met each one, um, when I met the Frankenstein monster, I went out to my dad's, um, we lived out in the country and had this sort of a barn shed and uh, I just pieced together pieces from an old um, trailer and some glass globes from telephone poles and made a uh, Frankenstein's uh, laboratory mm-hmm. and laid down on the table and imagined I was <laughs> when I learned about uh, when I was introduced to werewolves, I snuck out of the house at night many times and um, climb trees and uh, just wanted to feel like it, what it would be like to be an, uh, an animal client howling at the moon, trying to walk on the tips of my toes. And yeah, no, I, I didn't, I didn't see them as entertainment. In fact, it was kind of a letdown later on to find out that, uh, Oh, someone just thought this up to make money. Cause it was very meaningful to me. Hmm. Other children's Santa Claus were to your monsters. Hmm. Yeah, well, I hated Santa Claus. He never made any sense to me. I never bought that at all. Yeah, I mean, definitely there are a lot of stories in the horror business where that's the case. But um, you know, a lot of the old classics that that wasn't the case. That was that was part of the story. That's right. And I, I'll tell you, um, I connected very early on with Lon Chaney, who I wouldn't have known existed without um, Famous Monsters Magazine. Lon Chaney Senior. And I read about him for a couple of years, about 12, 13, 14, when I started reading that magazine without ever having seen any of these movies. When I was 14, 15, the Masons in our area had a Halloween um, event and they were showing silent, scary movies, they called them. Mm-hmm. And it was in the basement of a um, community center or a church or something like that. And they were projected onto a sheet 
And I begged my grandmother to let me go because they were showing Phantom of the Opera along with Nosferatu, the silent. And uh, so she rolled her eyes and she took me. <laughs> they had somebody playing piano, which didn't at all fit with the movies, but it didn't matter because when I saw those flickering images, he's sitting there engrossed in his music. She comes up behind him and it's the one thing that he asked her not to do. He gave her mm. everything. And he said, this is all I ask of you. And she couldn't do it. She couldn't stand it. She rips it off and Cheney stands up and he throws Mary Philbin to the ground. I mean, you can, you can see she really hit the ground. That hurt her bones when she hit. And then Shaney, with rage, looks at her and laughs, and the title comes up, and it says, Curse, feast your eyes, glut your soul on my accursed ugliness. In other words, is this what you wanted to see? Then this is what you shall see. Mm. And, and, and I knew that that performance by that man at that moment was real in some way that this wasn't pretend. And when I learned about Cheney's life, I found out that indeed that was true for him. He was very intense. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of funny that, you know, we were talking a moment ago about your getting fan letters and things like that. But uh, aside from your performances and character, it sounds like you, who you are as an actual person would also lend you towards getting these kinds of letters from people because they might actually feel that, you know, you can understand them. Yeah, I get a lot of I get a lot of ones on IMBD, but the people who actually do resonate with the stuff I do, it's a small core of people, but they're there, and yeah, they like they 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 kind of resonate with um, who I am as a person, and yeah, that's not which kind of makes sense in the same way that you identified with Lon Chaney too. So you know what? Now, see, I never thought of that, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, I'm going to have to write even longer responses now. Because <laughs> if I'd written to Cheney, oh, he might have blown me off. He might have. But I'd like to think that he wouldn't have. Well, never know. You know, he picked up Karloff. Karloff was hitchhiking. Huh. And um, Cheney was leaving Universal, and he, Karloff was just a day player. And he picked him up, and Karloff was like, you know, you're a star. This is 1930, the year before Cheney dies. And Karloff says, you know, what do I do? And Cheney says, find something that nobody else will do mm. and that nobody else can do and do it. It's funny. Cause I heard the same thing about, um, uh, Billy Bob Thornton mm. that somebody had told him the same thing. And, uh, the whole thing about sling blade was that was him writing the thing that, you know, this or the story that he, he wrote it for himself to, to be his vehicle. And yeah. And, and only a couple of times in my career have I had those, those kind of roles, um, but when you have them and it really resonates with who you are as a person, I, I hope it shows in the performance. Yeah. So um, I'm also curious in, in reading these stories and watching these movies, feeling that you were in the place that you were, were the movies at all instructional for you in terms of obviously, obviously how not to maybe interact with society, but, um, hope maybe hopefully ways to interact. That's a, that's, that's a really good question. Um, because of course the Frankenstein monster, he tried early, very briefly, but you know, he could just never get any attraction. Even when he was with the old guy with the fiddle, you know, saying, ah, oh, friend, friend, sure enough, the son's going to come home and like, Oh my God, you're ugly. I'm burning the house down. <laughs> um, didn't work for Eric. Of course, Eric was a little, he was a little obsessed 
you know, a bit of an overreaction, but <laughs> um, just Larry, Larry Talbot never had a, he never had a chance uh, because he was going to turn into the werewolf anyway. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I don't think they were instructional to me. And, and, and so I was kind of lost and not until I um, found spirituality and found my faith. Did I have any real idea of how to uh, interact with the world? The monsters just showed me what I was and told me that people were always going to react with horror. You mentioned not being scared of the woods or scared of the dark. Mm-hmm. Um, was there anything about these movies, you know, the horror stuff that did scare you? No, no. And that's a very strange thing to say. Um, I just liked that world and I wanted to be in it because it seemed to be where I fit. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe the world is a happy place. I believe that at root, the core of life is uh, suffering in one form or another. And happiness comes from accepting the suffering and learning how to embrace it mm-hmm. and to help others embrace it. I, yeah, I, I just liked the horror movies. I wasn't afraid of a horror movie until I saw Nightmare on Elm Street, the original. The scene where the body bag is dragged down the hall mm. uh, in the school and that shh, and then you saw that plastic with the blood. I think that's the first time that I actually felt fear. Hmm. Other than that, I was just visiting my friends. And why did I feel fear? Because it was death. And so I remember then I was like, Okay, now I want to know everything about death. What happens to dead bodies? What do we do with them? Why is death such a mystery? And so I now I have a whole shelf of books, the best of which is called What Happens to Dead Bodies? And so now I know a lot about decomposition and funeral practices and um, exactly what what happens when a body dies and what the signs are and all of these things. So yeah, maybe that wouldn't Maybe I wouldn't be afraid of that anymore. I'm curious why you were afraid of it in the first place, considering you weren't afraid of these other things. Because it meant not existing. There you go. Yeah, it's, it's a threat to your existence, your, your base existence of life. And it, it makes sense to me, you know, because you have these fantastical creatures that are mis, uh, misfits and misunderstood like yourself, so you identify mm-hmm. with them. But then you have this stark... Um, uh, not example, but uh, well, there's a difference between not being loved and not existing. I mean, it's a completely different ballpark. Yeah, that that's exactly. I never, never wanted to not exist or to you know end my life or anything like that. Right. I just wanted yeah. to find the. I, w- I was delighted to uh, encounter authors like the Gothic authors and Bradbury and uh, Poe and. To, had I not encountered them, I would have thought that the world in which I was told this is what the world is, that, that, that I was wrong because I didn't see the world that way. But then I learned that the world is simply stuff. And mm-hmm. then you, you decide the frame that you're going to put it in. Mm-hmm. Right. And so for my first frames were the books. And then later on when I did stage, the proscenium was the frame. And now it's actually the film frame. But it's it's just a matter of how you frame it. Otherwise, you know, it's just eating and drinking and sex and life and death. And it's just stuff. It's how and you- And even with the same character. I mean, you could, that, that, that line about, you know, you live to be the hero or you live longer, you die a hero to become the villain. You know, it, even in the same yes. character, it's where do you start and end that frame 
That's right. That's right. And then when you learn that there's so many different frames, then you have very little patience for people who say, this is how the world is. Mm-hmm. Because you're like, that's how the world is for you. Right. Mm-hmm. But that ain't how it is for me. And therefore, I can't expect it to be that way for Steve or for Chris or for anybody else. What I need to do is to listen to you talk about what the world is like for you and understand that that is true. And it's also a very narrow way of looking at the world that then, you know, when I, I know for myself, when I encounter people like that, I feel sad for that person because that means that they're blocking themselves off to all the rest of what life is. Sure. Even the way that we view the human body, you know, because I had um, an odd body and an attractive face from an early age, I, I I was into seeing the body not as something to always be uh, glorified or, you know, viewed as beautiful or not beautiful, but as a physical form through which we can express all sorts of emotions. And so I like using body horror in movies that I do because of that. I I don't have enough experience to speak on this definitively, but anecdotally, I I would not be surprised at all if a lot of people who have grown up feeling unattractive, uh, myself included, have had um, disassociative experiences with their own body of being able Mm -hmm. to say, you know, my body is my vehicle, but I am separate from it in a sense. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Cause I remember I was in middle school when I had an experience like that. I was also fairly well overweight in middle school and realizing that it wasn't me that these people hated. It was this. Um, That's right. And that if you looked a different way, they might react to do a different way, but you would be the same. And there are a lot of people who have not grown up experiencing those feelings who then can't necessarily appreciate that so when you do something like body horror it's really much more impactful to a person like that because they can't disassociate themselves or have never had to or never even thought about it so really i think those are the people that i think impacts or gets impacted by that a lot more um you mentioned this uh uh sort of not film festival, but the thing that was being put on by the Masons. Other than that, did you participate in Halloween as a child? Oh God, I love Halloween. It's my favorite. (laughs) Halloween. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Haunted houses were big then when I was a kid, live haunted houses. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I got into monster makeup. I ordered Dick Smith's course and took it. Nice. And uh, I, I looked at these historical photos of the early, makeup kits from Jack Pierce and Lon Chaney. And I wanted all the materials that were in there. I was an obsessive child and I had to have the same, even though that was the 1930s, you know, so it was like 30, 40 years behind, but I wanted those materials. Hmm. <laughs> there was something called, maybe expired at this point. Yeah. There was something called mortician's wax, yep. which was still okay. in use when I was a kid. And it was used to reconstruct um, deformed, uh, 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 degraded portions of bodies hmm. for viewing. Hmm. You know, it was just like a, a filler wax where you could like have a por- portion of the nose or missing or something before you put a person in the casket, you could use this wax to fill it in. Mm-hmm. And and I wanted the wax and the only place that sold it was uh, morticians, Pierce Chemicals in Texas. So in those pre-internet days, you could get away with a lot. So I called and said, you know, that my father owned a funeral home and that I was calling on his behalf 
for Oberst uh, funeral services, and we'd like to order some mortician's wax. <laughs> Get a 55-gallon drum of the stuff. Well, in those days, you actually sent cash in the envelope. Yep. So I just typed up a letter on my mom's typewriter, put the, uh, and then, you know, six to eight weeks later. Your mom's like, what the hell is this? My, <laughs> my mortician's wax, and I used it for... Uh, all sorts of monster makeups in the haunted houses. I remember when I learned how to do a tissue paper mummy and a crepe paper, crepe uh, hair werewolf. Yeah, it was just fantastic. Did you have a favorite uh, costume? Werewolf. Always werewolf. Yeah, I've always really, I've always really liked them. Because hmm. they can't, I like them because they can't help it. And then they're really vicious. So all my rage is poured into their viciousness. And then all my gentleness is poured into the, oh, they can't help it. Hmm. Plus, the movie's really cool. The 1942. I mean, I know. Yeah, it's cheesy. But, you know, the old gypsy woman. And yes, I know she's a, a stereotype and it's not cool now. But she's so great. You know, the path you walked was thorny, my son. Mm-hmm. She's great. So I used to I used to walk in the woods at night, sneak out of the house and walk in the woods at night and get back home before my family woke up. And I always imagined that I would meet this gypsy woman, <laughs> that she would come out of the woods and she would say, I understand, my son, the path you walk is thorny here. And she'd give me some little potion or something to wear around my neck, you know. <laughs> that would have made adolescence really good. <laughs> right? Uh, out of curiosity, since you, you like this dichotomy, how, how did you feel about Jekyll and Hyde? You haven't mentioned them. I love Jekyll and Hyde. Um, and the, the, the book is even better than any of the adaptations. Because mm. in the book, he changes back and back and back and back and back. Right. And he tries not to. And in the book, the compound was given him by mistake. It was a medicine that this old druggist used some outdated powders hmm. and he mixed this thing so it can never be recreated once this stuff is gone it's gone i remember so he, knows, he he's he had damn well better be jekyll when the stuff runs out or he's going to be trapped being high which hmm. is what happens i remember it being a quantity that would run out but i don't remember it being given to him by a pharmacist or a chemist or something like that it's in the book a chemist made a mistake and so, um, yeah, he doesn't have, the chemist doesn't have any more what he used. So mm. this is it. And that adds an extra level to it. I haven't mentioned this to Chris yet, but there's, uh, there's a little bit of a website that for podcast creators where you can go and check out other podcasts and maybe think about doing, you know, cross promotions and things like that. And so I was looking at other horror podcasts and there was one that's like, uh, very historical themed and the guy did two or three, I think podcasts just on Jekyll and Hyde and reviewed some of the background behind the book and stuff like that. Yeah. It was actually very interesting. Um, I've been meaning to tell you about that, but you might like that. Um, Mm -hmm. I'll have to, I did a, um, uh, uh, I have a pandemic podcast, which I, I started when the pandemic started and we just finished the first season called Gothic good night. And it's set in an old library and it's reading stories by Stevenson and Poe and, all of these other authors. Um, I found one by Hawthorne called The Minister's Black Veil, which I really wish I'd read as a kid because it would have resonated with me. It's it's a minister, and for no reason at all, he starts wearing a veil on the bottom half of his face. The, the, the congregation first is intrigued, then they're horrified, then the rumors start. Of course. And so for the rest of his life, he never takes off the veil. He never tells anyone why he's wearing it. 
nothing else about his behavior or his pastoral care, his sermons, his kindness, nothing changes except that you can no longer see the bottom half of his face. Hmm. And so people absolutely reject him. And even in even when he's dying with his last grasp of strength, he holds on so that they won't pull it down. And he makes them promise they'll bury him in it. It's very, very strange. Yeah. There's yeah, there's some great Gothic stories from the from from that period, the eighteen hundreds that I really wish were better known and more celebrated. Uh, you mentioned Poe. Did were you introduced to Poe in your childhood, or did that oh, come later? God, yes, yeah. And I didn't understand him. He was too deep for me. And parts of Poe are boring, even still. You have to do good. <laughs> yeah. But I, but I tried to read him, and the ones that I could understand uh, were his poems. Mm. Um, the Conqueror Worm was the first thing I ever memorized. I think when I was eleven or twelve, I knew the, all the words to the Conqueror. So you know, a little. A little pimply-faced 11-year-old saying, you know, the, the play is the tragedy man and its hero, the conqueror worm. Mm. Like, you know, you're a really weird kid. Mm. <laughs> Did you have a least favorite costume? Yeah, uh, Dracula, because it was always the tux. Mm. And I was like, why is it the tux? I mean, yes, okay, he was a count. So this particular vampire, it makes sense that he would. But all vampires don't wear a damn tuxedo. Mm. No, so no, that's hate, the uniform. That's in the charter. I hated them, right. And not, <laughs> not all of them have a widow's peak. They can have different hairstyles. So the, the Lost Boys was really liberating to me. Mm. Because it was like, yes, vampires can be any age and they can be all sorts of things. <laughs> so, yeah, I never, I never really dug Dracula so much. Not sure any of the other childhood questions really make sense to ask. So I guess let me skip down to... Uh, I guess, teenage years then, you mentioned, um, well, thinking about our ages and you mentioned Freddy, but I'm thinking, would that be teenage years or going into adulthood there? No, it's going into adulthood. So for me, teenagers would be late seventies okay, to early eighties. So it was at the tail end. So yeah, um, it was, it was the golden age of, television movies, made-for-TV movies, those 90-minute things. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of really cool ones in the 70s that ran over and over and over again. The original Night Stalker, um, a movie called Gargoyles. And that was just when uh, video was just starting to come out. And so you could get things like Funhouse. Um, I saw Phantasm for the first time in that period. Nice. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, my memories of... Uh, adolescent horror or being at somebody's house or having somebody, a group of guys over to the house and watching these horror movies. And we would trash them. We would just tear them <laughs> apart. But it was really fun. I mean, we really liked them, but we would also tear them apart mercilessly. Yeah. You had your own MST 3k before it was even a thing. Absolutely. Well, that also helps people feel uh, superior or, you know, safer because it does, yeah. If you're watching like a scary movie, uh, if, if it does bother you, if you're, I'm not um, afraid of this. I can laugh at it and poke fun at it. And- yeah. And you know what? I have to amend because earlier I said that the Freddy body bag was the first thing that scared me, and I completely blanked out on The Exorcist. I saw it on the re on the re release in the theaters. I was not mm-hmm. old enough to get into the mm-hmm. theater, but they let me in, and it scared the hell out of me. Yeah. What scared you in that? Oh shit. Mm-hmm. 
everything. It. It, well, it was <laughs> I think the brilliance of it, and the book's even better, is that uh, there's really strong evil and really strong good, and both of them are very strong. Mm. So that got me interested in um, uh, the whole subject of exorcisms, which led me into um, other sorts of paranormal, UFOs, and spirit talking from beyond the grave and all that sort of thing. So it led to a whole new bookshelf. Mm. But now, I'll tell you, if people could, back then I was, can people speak from beyond the grave? I mean, it fascinated me, mm. along with Bigfoot and everything else. But now... I don't care if people can speak from beyond the grave. If they have nothing to say, what do I care? Right. Yeah. Like, do you know anything? Hey, I'm from beyond the grave. Oh, hey, dude. Do you know anything more than I know? No. <laughs> do you know what's going to happen in the future? No. But I can tell you what happened back then. Well, I don't really have time. I got my own life. Right. So what do you want? Yeah, it's funny that to hear you say that because, you know, there are a lot of people who think that, you know, adults are smarter or what have you. And, and then to become an adult and find out that there are people who go through their whole lives, never changing or growing in any way, shape or form. And they get to be 60 years old and they're still the same person they were when they're 15. So yeah. Why would a ghost necessarily have anything interesting to say? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it was like the movie ghost, you know, with Whoopi Goldberg, yeah. I got dead people from New Jersey in here. They're driving me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I, I had to watch a, um, I say had to, I turned out I liked it. It was a George C. Scott movie called, oh, what was it? You, you guys probably know it. He's in a haunted house. He moved into, what is it called? This George C. Scott movie, The Conjuring? No. Oh, now the name escapes me. But it's the ghost of a child and he wants his bones dug up. Hmm. And he keeps trying to communicate with George C. Scott, who's, whose wife and child have died, and he's in grief. And at one point, Scott says, what the hell do you want? <clears throat> like, you're not telling me what you want, because the child just keeps saying, my father, my father. What do you want? That seems like a very George C. Scott kind of thing. <laughs> we have limit, I have limited time here. What is it that I can do for you? It's like an email where the, the ask is buried in this long ass paragraph. Right. And I'm like, what do you want? <laughs> Q Monty Python, get on with it. Thank you. Yes. Um, you mentioned, uh, you know, the exorcist and the strong good and evil earlier. You had mentioned um, getting in touch with spirituality. I, I didn't touch on that at that particular moment, but I'm guessing did, did that happen sometime between uh, before you got to the exorcist or was this like a, uh, a mile marker on the way to it? Yeah, it was a mile marker on the way to it. And in, in typical Billy fashion, I rejected everything that everybody else told me about God or spirituality or Jesus or any of it. Cause I had to figure it out for myself. That's mm -hmm. always been my great downfall is I can't listen to a damn person. I've mm -hmm. got to figure it out for myself. Like, yo, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So that's how nuclear physics works. Well, I'll be the judge of it. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. Let me, let me look at this one page outline and I'll tell you. Right and here. I was about to say, I wouldn't consider that a downfall more, more of a, just a, a delay and a solid trait because then you, yeah. you know, you, you know, everything because you experience it personally. Uh, but, yeah, it. you're right with, with nuclear physics. That might be, um, <laughs> maybe just read about that. You one. know about the kid that built a reactor in his shed. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> or was trying to build a reactor, but hadn't actually completely done so, but did have, oh, was he unable to obtain any plutonium? Well, that's where he got caught was he was trying to. <laughs> God. And they found oh out that God. he did have enough that his shed was radioactive. 
Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. They're like, yeah, you can't do that. <laughs> I, um, I started reading about exorcism and I read account after account after account, for which some of which were bullshit, but some of which were credible from way, way, way back. And a, th- a string throughout all of these exorcism was that uh, the name that these demons seemed to fear was Jesus. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, they were Roman Catholics, so they were predisposed to say that. I know there are, there are exorcisms from other countries too, but that led me into... Um, <laughs> that would make a great know. short. They have like a, like a, I don't know, let's say a Muslim exorcist and you call out Jesus and they, they're just like, who? You know what? That's a that's a very interesting point. Hmm. So anyway, that Sorry. led me into well, led me into wanting to find out what Jesus was because as he was presented to me in church, he was a frightening and um, a f- boring figure. I wanted nothing to do with him. But then I started to read about uh, him in that period of your life when you're a teenager and everything's very. Uh, very strong, you know, very dramatic to you. Mm-hmm. And the, the metaphor of his life and the self-sacrifice and the way he said the answer to life's questions is love. It's love. Mm-hmm. It really resonated with me and stuck with me and helped me. And I've retained it to this day. That's good. There's lots of different things you can take from there's, I mean, there's a lot of material so you can find what you want in it. Um, and he did an exorcism. I remember that's what led me actually into my study of that was that uh, there's a, a couple of exorcisms in there. The most frightening one is a man who is living naked in the tombs and he has chains all over him and he runs down this hill towards Jesus and screams, screams. And uh, Jesus says, as exorcists still do, one of the questions they're allowed to ask is, what is your name? Mm. Mm. And he says, my name is Legion for we are many. Mm. And that, uh, I thought, wow, that's a really cool Jesus story. They never told me. I never heard that one. I was just yeah. going to say, I don't remember right. that one. All the good stuff is, yeah, oh, they I don't, think, don't. I do remember the line, we are legion, we are many, or something like that. That sticks out to me. Yeah, that I've heard before, but it's, I think that's just because a lot of people have grabbed Probably. that one excerpt because it sounds we cool don't and think, reused it. We don't think kids can handle ambiguity and strong stuff. And so as a result, we teach them babified versions of things far beyond the time when they're babies. I think we should give kids more credit and and just tell them, here are things that seem to be completely diametrically opposed and we don't quite understand them. You know, if a kid said, mommy, what is heaven like? If mommy actually said, I got no idea, honey. <laughs> we think and we hope that is a place where we somehow continue to live and are reunited, but we really don't know. Right. Why yep. not tell a kid that? I'm I'm of mixed emotions on this because I completely understand and, and completely agree that uh, you know, the fairy tales have gotten watered down quite a lot over the centuries. But on at the same time, the problem from a parent's perspective is you don't know what's gonna traumatize your kid until after it traumatized them. So you got, there's that balance of, I want to teach you a lesson, but I'm not trying to screw you up for the rest of your life too. So uh, you should have German parents. You wouldn't worry about that. Well, that's true. <laughs> I, I had Polish grandparents. So, Oh, well, <laughs> that's some stern assness. I'll bet. Yeah. Uh, she didn't actually, she didn't really teach me much in the way of, um, uh, like the old fashioned fairy tales, but she was very religious. And I remember, you know, I had like a child's, picture bible 
that I could color mm-hmm. in and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. My Germanic father taught me that to be a man is to work. That's what it is. Yeah. Mm. So even today, when I talk to him, the very first thing that he'll what say you is, what are you working on? Yeah. And if I'm not working, then I have to make something up because I'm not a man if I'm not working. <laughs> yeah, my grandmother was very nose to the grindstone her whole life. It was. It didn't matter mm-hmm. if I was getting 98, 99, 100, 102 with the extra credit questions. It's, okay, that's good. What's next? Thank <laughs> you. Yeah, that's right. You never bask in anything. Yeah. Like, I made straight A's. Well, that was what was expected. Now exactly. what are you going to yeah. do? You, should, you ought to. Supposed so to. when you're raised like that, when you hear people say it's my birthday week, you really want to gag, <laughs> right? Your your birthday week, Re- really? Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. So let's see. We've got uh, Night Stalker, Gargoyles, Funhouse, Phantasm, Exorcist, uh, this George C. Scott movie. Um, anything else jump out at you is impacting you in your teenagers? Steven Spielberg's TV movie Duel. Okay. You know, you've seen it with the, it's the truck, the truck with the, um, I forget who he's chasing. It's somebody known. I haven't seen it so long, but it's, it's a, it's a big semi with tinted windows. It's black. So you never find out who's in the truck or why they're chasing this guy. That does sound familiar. It's terrifying because anywhere the guy stops and you think he's gotten away from the truck. Wait, Whoa! wasn't wait, wasn't this like at the start of the movie, like somebody flips off the trucker or something like that, and then he chases him Did for the rest of the movie? Okay, I don't remember the flip off. I don't think I but, saw but, the movie, but I think I remember something about them flipping him off or something like that, or cutting him it, off or something. Yeah, that's a, I, I really like that. That made a strong uh, impact on me. That was before Jaws when Spielberg did that. Was it? Yeah, it was. It was even uh, before Hitcher, which is a similar plot line. Mm. Yeah, I've I've always been um, uh, impatient with uh, exposition. I hate it. I just want to get to the stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, like, I don't really need to know why, you know, the backstory of why this trucker's doing this. And I really yeah. love the way, just sort of out of the blue, he just starts chasing this guy. Yeah, some of the best stories are absolute show, don't tell, and, and you just have to figure it out because if it's a good enough story, you can figure it out. Like, yeah. um, Well, to get dropped in the middle of it without having an, any uh, any time for explanation, I mean, that's a that's a real-life thing. Sometimes you walk into the middle mm-hmm. of something, you go, whoa, wait, what? what? Yeah, and that, That's why I like art house um, and cult-type things and phantasm, and I like things that I don't immediately understand where I have to go, what? Where am I? Yeah, I don't think they even uh, explained anything with Phantasm until the second film. <laughs> yeah. Anything else? A very strange one, which you may not think of as a horror movie. And I didn't, for a couple of years after I saw it, but it was Amadeus, the film of Mozart's, um, well, okay. it's a fantasy on Mozart's life. Right. Yeah. But it's because of the, uh, the performance of Salieri that mm-hmm. he goes mad because he's not as gifted as someone else. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, try- I remember that uh, that film from my childhood too. And it was, you're right, it's not a horror film, but just the uh, the delivery that, I can't remember the name of the actor, but the guy who plays Salieri gives is uh, is, is very prominent, you know? Yeah, and, and, and it's, I guess it struck me because of uh, my own feelings of, you know, wanting to be things that I was not. And it was a warning that uh, that can drive you mad. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
That's and, uh, and, and, and I remember years later seeing Anthony Hopkins as Nixon, which is not a great film, but Hopkins is great in it. And there's this one line Hopkins sells it so well, where Nixon's in the Watergate days, and he's looking at a portrait of Kennedy up on the wall, that famous portrait of Kennedy with his hands uh, crossed and his head down. And Nixon looks at him. He's got a tumbler, some, something in his hand. He says, "Ah, oh, when they look at you, and see what they want to be." When they look at me, they see what they are. Mm. And he takes a drink. I was like, yeah, that's it. Wow. That's a good line. <laughs> that's it. When they look at so, so, yeah. So when I make movies and do these roles, I don't want to phone the evil in because I want people to see this stuff. I want to embody the dark stuff that's inside them that they may not want to look at mm. so i guess that's my way of doing what the phantom did with christine was saying feast your eyes glut your soul mm. yeah you be be careful about what you want because it could take you in directions that you didn't expect yeah that's right absolutely uh, envy yeah yeah and envy is a really dangerous thing and our culture does nothing but celebrate it well <laughs> i don't know about that i mean there's definitely elements of our culture that do celebrate it, but I think there's there's fair amounts that recognize the unhealthiness of it, but they don't always get the same amount of airtime, shall we say. Um, no, you're right. You mentioned uh, having a group of friends that you sat around and watched movies with at this point. Did this group of friends, were they fans of horror in particular or just a group of people that you hung out with in general and you just also had yeah to we were yeah we were we were the horror boys really mm-hmm. um yeah horror was pretty big when i was a kid it was like they were having a renaissance well i mean it was nice that you at least had a group of friends that appreciated some of the same things yeah once i accepted my freakishness then i could meet other freaks mm-hmm. and was okay but other the worst, kindred spirits if you will yeah and kids i guess kids today have it easier because because you can find freakery pretty quickly now. Yeah, we sure. have the internet now. Yeah, but what was I going to do? Look in the phone book under F for free? <laughs> I know, right? Like, just dial every name in your local directory in your town. And go, Hello, do you like weird shit? That's Hello? right. And so for most of them, it was a passing stage. And then they became regular people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, but I just, you know, made a career out of it. I don't know how, how can I say It's not always even just about kindred spirits as much as... There's a life lesson to be learned, particularly in teenage years, because it doesn't usually happen earlier than that. Um, But the life lesson of just not giving a fuck, frankly. Um, When I grew up, I moved around a lot as a kid. And for high school, um, I moved to a town that had three elementary schools, and I hadn't gone to any of those three. I moved there freshman year of high school. And so there were these three clicks that I didn't belong to any of them. And for the first two years, I really felt like the outcast and was teased quite a bit and could never quite get in with any of the groups. I was, you know, on the fringes of all the groups. And then mm-hmm. for my junior year, I moved to Philadelphia to be with my mom's side uh, of the family for a year and then came back a year later for senior year in, in Jersey. And in in this transition, what happened was it was a small town in New Jersey, but when I went to Philadelphia, I was one I was, it was a very large school. There were five thousand kids in this class in the in the school. And because it was such a large school, 
you couldn't possibly know everybody. And so by default, everybody, and this is also right on the border of sort of a rough neighborhood. So by default, everybody just pretended or accepted or, or defaulted to assuming that you were cool with somebody because mm. it was dangerous not to, because you never know who, if you, you know, pick on somebody, you could wind up into a, end up, end up getting into a fight with somebody who's got some dangerous friends kind of thing. So mm-hmm. the default was different. The default wasn't, we're going to pick on you. The default was, we're just going to accept that you're cool. And mm-hmm. that year in that environment really changed my attitude about not my, not only myself, but the other people around me. So that when I came back for senior year, I was a very different person. And and I remember other people picking up on that and going, you're much cooler now than, than you were when you left. And we're glad that you came back, but it wasn't because I got in touch with people that uh, were kindred spirits as much as, like I say, it was just the life lesson of sometimes not give a fuck. Yeah. I mean, you know, kids tease each other and are mean to each other. Some kids grow out of that. Some don't, but there's a, you know, there's, there's a learning process there. And part of that learning process is like I say, to not give a fuck. Um, I, I can relate to that. This is the way I felt when I learned uh, how long it took bodies to decompose mm. because <laughs> I was just going to say, <laughs> explain that. <laughs> that is more, a great segue. The, the more I learned about death, mm-hmm. And the falseness of the way we deal with it, the more I could look at these people who were mean ass people and say, you're going to die and then your belly's going to bloat and it's going to split open. I mean, mine will too, but you're not that special. I could almost laugh. Yeah. I could almost laugh at everything from presidents to popes to mean ass people on the street and go, we're all the same. It doesn't really matter. Equalizer. Yeah. Isn't it though? Isn't it? It really is. At the end of the day, we're all just carbon that rots into a different type of carbon. And we begin to die the moment that we're born. Yes. Yes. They say the leading cause of death is life. (laughs) (laughs) Or as Carlin put it, life is just the slowest possible way or no, uh, perfect health is merely the slowest possible way to die. I Uh, like that. I'll accept that. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what good horror does is it allows people to uh, face mortality and to have some encounter with it. And they feel they don't know why they feel better, but they feel better. They feel as if they have stopped avoiding something that they shouldn't have ever avoided in the first place. Good place to stop and ask you, why does it make you feel better? Anything that deals honestly with the fact that we're here for a short time and then we're gone. Yeah. Right, but Something I mean, why I does that make you feel better? Why? Mm-hmm. Because it's truthful, it's honest, and I learned early on how to lie as a defense mechanism. I learned that I had the gift of saying things, and people would believe them if I said them a certain way and looked at them a certain way. And so I lied about everything for a few years in high school. It was horrible. I mean, it becomes horrible when all of your lies catch up with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I chose as a career illusion. I did stage for 14 and a half years, and now I've done film for 12. Um, And so I crave truth. You know, I don't need bullshit. I know how to do bullshit. I do it for a living. Mm. (laughs) You know, tying back to something that you said earlier, right here, you're talking about the honesty of death, but I remember something you said earlier about your, what you experienced in your childhood. And it's reminding me 
that it's also might be for you, honesty of life. Um, Mm. you know, there was, there was that moment that we talked about life being what you choose to focus on. Mm. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly the wording you used, but yeah, it's the frame, the the frame you put it in. Yeah. Yeah. So are you saying that then that the, uh, honesty of life would be the, uh, factual, just standard, stuff of life as as bill mentioned earlier and maybe the lie is the frame that you put on around it <laughs> that's a really interesting way to put it. yeah that's an interesting way to put it yeah because if you look at you look at things um in any sort of a poetical lens then then you get into metaphor and greater meaning and you know what lincoln said in the gettysburg address he says uh, um, um we've come here to do this we've come here to do this these guys died here then he says but in a larger sense, mm-hmm. we cannot. And so the meaning of life is about the larger sense that you put on it. Mm-hmm. And having a good understanding of mortality for me helps give me a larger sense of uh, life and the preciousness of it. Yeah. It gets rid of the uh, the mysticalness of the end of life once you understand more of just the, the raw science of That's what right. to you. And, and, and then you're, then you're not so precious, you know, and your body's not so precious. And I have scars that I've even more, I had scars to begin with, but I've, I've, I've have scars now from doing this work. I've hurt my leg. I have a big scar on my face from a stunt that went wrong. And so when you, when you have a sense of us as constantly in decaying and fighting against it, you're like, so what is the scar? Mm Mm-hmm. It's not like, oh, my body is so precious and perfect that it can never be marked or scarred. You know, what the hell? Yeah, I mean, right. You're not so precious. I'm not so precious. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I said it earlier, but one of the things you were talking about memorizing that poem, and one of the things that my grandmother had me memorize was the Gettysburg Address, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I was... I was bugging myself trying to remember parts of it because. Come on, you can do it. Uh, I'm not going to try to do the whole thing right now, but yeah, I, I know the gist of it, but not the exact words. But getting to the point that you were making a minute ago about the consecration of what he was saying was basically the the men that died here have consecrated this battlefield far more than the silly words that we're saying over it. Yeah, um, consecrated it. Yeah. Yeah, blood consecrated it. Right. And it makes me think of the story of uh, Cain and Abel. Uh, there's a great line that's attributed to um, uh, God where he says, you know, what have you done? Your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Mm-hmm. I remember reading that as a kid and thinking, wow, the the, the, the fact that this the blood of that's the sacrifice blood is so strong that it's crying out to the ground like, ah, mm. That's powerful. So yeah, death, yeah, death consecrates. Mm-hmm. And that's where I was going earlier with, you know, Chris had brought up the thing about uh, the framing. That's why I said potentially uh, touches on, on that, because if you frame whatever it is, the story to not focus on that, then obviously you're avoiding that. Or if you're focusing on that, then you're focusing on that. But um what are your perspective or including it as part of a larger picture to say that, you know, yes, that's part of it, but it's not the only thing, which is also. That's important. right. Um, yes. Because happiness can only exist. As, uh, 
happiness can't exist unless it's juxtaposed with uh, sorrow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To me, happiness is the exception. It's not the rule like, oh, I'm going to be happy all my life. Well, you'll be miserable. Yeah. It, it's only by accepting this, the suffering. And then how can I, by embracing that, uh, helping others embrace it, helping my family, those I love, then I'll have moments of happiness because I've risen above the soil that life is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the things yeah, that like I really happiness. sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say it's, it's like happiness is the uh, the release and the relief of just trying to constantly find happiness. The the real happiness is realizing that you don't have to search for it and just relax. I um I really like I don't know if you're familiar with his work at all, but there's uh, now deceased Professor Joseph Campbell who uh, studied mythology all over the world, and I sure. really liked yes. I really liked what he said about one of the, the purposes of religion and or mythology, however you choose to phrase it from the earliest days was a human, the human beings way of learning how to cope with the reality that death is a part of life that, you know, we're constantly mm-hmm. having to kill in order to eat, um, to mm-hmm. survive and, and also deal with the fact that, particularly back then that we were also being eaten, uh, killed to be eaten so that other animals could live. Um, mm-hmm. and having to come to terms with the, the ethics, uh, you know, how, how do you make that sustainable psychologically, you know, and there are a lot of people today who cannot process that. And that's one of the, there are some people who choose to be, for example, vegan or vegetarian because they, they choose to for other reasons, but there are some who choose to do so because they cannot handle the ethics of it. And I just thought that that was really fascinating to think that that may have been the real source of potentially all mythologies and all religions uh, of the world of, you know, just starting with that question and then moving on to other questions. Yes. That's, that's the big one, right? I mean, if we were naked in a cave and just hunting for sustenance, when a person died, and just cease to exist, mm-hmm. that, that would be the one thing that would need to be explained, understood, because otherwise it would just drive you mad. If you had no poetical frame for it and people could just not exist at any time. Well, there's that too, but even before a person dies, there's the whole question of, is it okay for me to kill other things and eat them? Oh, that adds another layer to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, Okay, so let's say we are, we're in the cave, we, we kill animals, we eat them, we're cool with that. Would, we, would there be any point at which we would think, wait, does this animal in any way like me? How would we begin to have empathy for an animal? Well, that was, that was the case is because when you're living that close to nature and on a daily and yearly cycle, you're seeing that these animals mate and they give birth and they raise their children and aren't they so sort of like us in some of these ways. And, mm-hmm. and yet I have to now make peace with the fact that I have to murder you so that I can sustain myself. Um, mm. You know, or, or vice versa that you, you could end up killing me to support your family. Um, that, that whole ethical dilemma of how to, how do I participate in this without being sad? Uh, and going back to the point of happiness that you were talking about. And how do I participate? If Okay, so the ways that I could deal with that are, all right, then it's okay to kill everything, including people, 
right? That's one way to deal with it. That's one way. I would agree. That's the other way. Maybe you that- could say, well, then I can't kill anything. But mm-hmm. if that were the case back the, the time you're talking about, you wouldn't live. Right. So you sure you have to at some point develop mythologies that allow you to say I can kill this but not this mm-hmm. I can kill and this explain and why this. right yeah. like why can I not kill a doe but I can kill a stag and so forth when can I kill a human right. when is it not okay hmm interesting I think it's all meat you know well I mean you, you can kill whatever you need to if you need to survive it's just it's all meat it's but see fine. even there you say if you need to survive so you're putting a qualification mm-hmm. on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> Plus that meat sometimes has family members and friends that will miss it. And, you know, then you got to hide the body and got to chop it up and put it in six different States. It's just, it's a whole thing. Yeah. Um, one question I didn't ask, uh, during the che- the childhood years. So I'll, I guess I'll ask this both for teenage years and childhood years. Was there any experience you had, uh, with any of the things that, you were exposed to in terms of either horror or real life that um, triggered any fears, lasting fears that changed how you dealt with the world or approached the world. Yes. Um, an interest in the occult, mm-hmm. uh, which was ill-advised. In fact, nobody advised me. I was just a very rageful teenager. I mask my rage under sensitivity, but I was very rageful. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I had an interest in uh, demons and demonology, which went a little bit too far and um, frightened me and resulted in some frightening experiences, which were probably my own imagination, but they frightened me nonetheless. And so mm-hmm. it left me with a very, my frame then came to include the presence of evil in the world mm-hmm. um, as real serious evil with a malevolence that intends to hurt and delights in hurting. It Mm -hmm. made me a lot more careful about the things that I explored because even then I was an actor. I just wanted to be things. So now I I play very dark, malevolent people frequently, Mm -hmm. but I say, you may come in for this period of time. And during this period of time, you have full sway, but then you must leave. And this is an agreement that has to be made before the role begins, because I'm not going to phone it in and I'm not going to play. I want people's the hair to stand up on the back of their neck and I want them to say, oh, my God, there's real evil in the world, but I can't hold on to it. Right. Right. That's an interesting way of, uh, of describing being an actor and, and acting in these roles is, uh, yeah, you kind of you let the character in and become that character, but always temporarily because you, know, you don't want to, of course make a home for something that evil in your, in your mind. That's right. And not just actors and actresses, but I mean, I think that's fair to say about a lot of the world that, you know, there are these psychological, I want to say doors, protections that a lot of people have to put into place, particularly people that work in like, uh, children, you know, child and family services, protective services, police officers, um, EMS, mm-hmm. you know, first responders, um, the people that go after pedophiles and things like that. There's a lot of different careers in the world where to protect your own emotions and sanity, you have to be able to erect those psychological barriers. Like you, like we were saying, you know, stare too long into the void and the void stares back into you. Um, mm-hmm. Understandable. Um, let's see. Uh, did you per- continue participating in Halloween into your teens? 
Oh yeah, yeah. I never stopped loving Halloween. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I mean, I've always seen Halloween as fun. I've never bought into the idea that Halloween is somehow, you know, a celebration of evil or the occult. It's a part part harvest celebration and um, you know part birth and death and renewal. And Ray Bradbury's The Halloween Tree. I think Ray created his own mythology for how Halloween came to be. And uh, it's beautiful. I love, I love, love that book. And now um, I've incorporated into my Halloween celebrations, Dias de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how many different stories can be told that all make sense. Um, that's That was one of the things that fascinated me about like Greek and Roman mythology and Norse mythology as well, that, you know, there's all these different stories and finding ways to make them interconnect and and in a way that actually makes obviously stretching the logic a little bit i was gonna say making makes sense but not how can i say this i mean makes sense in a way that somebody that lived two thousand years ago would say i could see that being reality that's right yeah and in some and in, in, in some ways it's like um a conversation with a stuffed animal I don't know exactly how to say what I want to say, but it's too con- too easy and too convenient to say that's not real. What you're believing in and what you're uh, you need to do, you need to face real life. Yeah, that's what I wanted to get to. You need to face real life, Mister. Well, what is real life? Right. Yeah. I mean, I I struggle with the same concept all the time. When it comes down to it, you start to ask those really, really vague questions of what is reality and what is normal, what is natural, what is unnatural. And it's all always comes back to eye of the beholder. You know, I mean, you, no one can really prove anything at the end of the day. So well, what is one real of the, life, air quotes? One of the four functions of mythology that Joseph Campbell came up with, he tried to figure out what the functions of mythology were. One of, one of the four is, as he referred to it, the cosmological function, which is to explain to a person living in a particular society, growing up with a particular mythology, that this is your place in the universe and this is how we understand the universe. And, and one of the reasons that mythologies change over time, over the thousands of years that we've had them, is because as our knowledge expands, our view of the world expands and changes. So the mythology needs to change to incorporate the new understanding of the universe we live in. And, and, and I, it's funny you say that, you know, because the year that we've just gone through in the United States, um, I'm a big fan of a civic religion. I'm a big fan of, of, of uh, mythologies that allow people to feel that we are in some sort of a unit, even though we're just in an arbitrarily created nation state. Mm. We need that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. so we have seen now ways in which the mythology needs to be updated. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's funny you say that because that's one of the other four is the sociological function. So I'm trying to remember what they are. There's cosmological, sociological, pedagogical, which is uh, teaching us how to live our own lives as an individual, meaning what does it mean for me to manage my emotions as I grow up and as I, uh, as a child and as I go towards death as an, as a, as an adult. And there's a, I'm trying to remember what the fourth one was, but ba- I know the general gist of it is to instill in each person the awe of the unknown, um, because there's always mm-hmm. going to be that that unknown that is the base for everything. So if you can look at world at the universe with the awe, that's that's the foundation. Then you explain what 
parts you can explain. Then you say, okay, this is a society you have to live in and here are the rules and, and things. And then here's how you deal with your own personal stuff. That's basically the four that he came up with. And, and implicit in the idea of awe is something larger than yourself, whether that thing is real or not. Yeah. Something larger than yourself at which you can have awe. Hmm. So moving over to adult years, um, I guess you said that the Freddy Krueger stuff would have been more towards the adult years. Lost Boys, I'm guessing, also around that same time frame. Um, moving in now from this point forward, what were some of your more impacting things uh, in the horror genre? Well, I got into uh, theater, and mm-hmm. so I started touring my own stuff. Um because I was obstinate and I didn't want to do what other people said. I just wanted to do my own stuff. So I <laughs> started <laughs> touring my own stuff and I am, uh, had the opportunity to uh, do some adaptations of um, some stories that were really impactful to me when I was a kid, the Telltale Heart. You go back to the Gothic roots. As an adult, I find um, uh, slashers less frightening than uh, the Gothic. I guess sort of the embodiment of it would be uh, what Roger Corman and Vincent Price did with the Poe movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're a little cheesy, but they're very lush and very filled with this for sense of foreboding. So there's a, uh, the very okay. first Ray Bradbury piece I ever read was called Pillar of Fire. Mm. And he wrote about a world in which there were no more corpses because superstition and anything dark or anything like that was banned. But they had left one cemetery as a tourist attraction. Hmm. Uh, It's a beautiful piece, and it's all told through William Lantry, the the dead man through his eyes. So I turned that into a touring stage performance and and began to understand the great satisfaction of speaking dark, uh, poetic words on stage. Mm Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I bet you're right that um, it's just more fun to uh, act out in in darker characters and roles, uh, especially in performance theater, just because it, it lends so much more emotion to itself. Than- yeah, there's a little sound that an audience makes when you've reached that part of them that realizes they're going to die. Huh? It's just a little, it sounds kind of like from the stage, it sounds like a collective, hmm. it's just that, it's that gentle, it's... Mm-hmm. And so in each piece that I did, I would work and work and work until I found the right reading or portion of the script that would bring about that little. And that's what I always worked for. Is it revenge? No, it's the only way I can commune with them. Hmm. It's the only ground on which I can commune because their lives are so different from mine. And minds are different from them, and I, I, I don't have a natural affinity for people anyway. You know, I've always been sort of afraid of them. I'm a hermit. I don't do well in social situations, but in performance, I can meet them on the common ground of we're all going to die. Do you really think that's your only common ground you have with people? Well, people are very different, you know. What do you think your common ground with other people is? I'm not saying this to shame you, but I, my own personal answer to that would be, I hope I have more in common with other people than that. What, what is it that you have in common with oh, other lots people, of people as a whole? Um, I would, my personal take on things is that we are probably 95% more alike than different. Um, 
what I mean by that is that even the things that make us different, we all have things that make us different. And so if you can, and not everybody is able to move past. So in, in the therapy work I've done and the counseling and 12 step stuff, there's a phrase called that just says, um, don't compare, identify. And that phrase is used particularly in 12 step groups because a lot of people will go into a 12 step group and they'll immediately start picking apart the shit that they're hearing and the people they're hearing it from, because they want any reason that they can find to say that I'm not this so that I can leave and put that behind me and say, I'm not like those people. Hmm. And so one of the difficult things to do in order to be able to open yourself up, open yourself up to the wisdom that can be found in these group settings is to be able to set that aside. And there's another phrase, take what you like, leave the rest. So if you can do those two things, if you can set aside the internal desire to say, I am not like you, then that leaves the opportunity then for you to be able to say, okay, well, what ways am I, am I like you? And I will say, and I'm not, meaning to speak about you in particular, but I know that there's a lot of people in the world who have a very hard time doing that. Um, and, but for me, at least I feel like if, if I can look past those things that, yeah, I do feel like we're a lot more alike than different. I'm glad I gave the answer that I did, Steve. So you could say what you just said. It's, it, that it's instructive to me and I'm sure to many, many other people who will be listening. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. I have one quick question related on the uh, the uh, the same thing that got us off on that tangent. Mm-hmm. When you have that uh, that reaction of everyone in the uh, the audience when doing stage performance, is it like a chorus of that small noise of the? Mm, but it's it's like a long wave of a chorus of them because that was just it seems like that would sound really neat. Yeah, it's it's uh, no, yeah, it's not all at once. Yeah, it's just like a it's it's an exhale. It sounds like to me. Mm-hmm. It's a collective exhale, which I really, really like because I'm exhaling with them. Yeah. And it's completely silent except for this mutual letting out of breath, which I guess is sort of like the final breath of death, you know, yeah. like a, a precursor of that. I am death obsessed, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> Quite all right. No apology necessary. I, my first thought was that it was the the release of the stress of coming up to that threshold, but I could see how you could also say the, that actual threshold of death too. Well, birth also begins with the breath. So I guess it just depends on your frame. <laughs> Bringing you back to the frame. Uh, has there been anything that has, that you've experienced in your adult life now that has changed um, any triggered, any fears or changed how you approach the world? The fact that I have to stop and think probably means no. Yeah. Um, Pretty chill and play being a horror actor, quote unquote, a horror cult actor mm-hmm. has really helped that. It's really helped me be at peace um, because now all the very worst parts of me physically and emotionally are on screen immortalized forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, nobody may see some of these movies, but they're there. <laughs> yeah, I've exercised a lot of stuff that way, mm-hmm. but I do feel very, very protective of um of monsters, especially wounded monsters. Um, yeah, the metaphor of the wounded monster. I groove on it. I like it. Mm-hmm. It excites me. It comforts me. 
Yeah. It's interesting because I think you and I have similar, I'm going to say this, I think we've reached similar places in terms of what we get out of horror, but we came to them through different paths, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, without going into the long-winded discussion of how I came to it, um, for me, what I get out of, and not all kinds of horror, but certain types of horror, remind me of some of the things that I've learned in, in therapy and the 12 stuff stuff, which is basically I have every right to be here. Yeah, that's right. Th- yes, that's right. I can now look in the mirror and say, I like you. <laughs> I like my body because I live in here. <laughs> I like, uh, I'm proud of some of the work that I've done. I have a right to be here. I have no more right than you do, but I right. damn sure have. No less. And that was the thing for me is one of my struggle struggles again, without going into the long winded discussion of it was valuing myself, uh, you know, above below or equal to other people. And that, that value judgment, mm-hmm. um, and kind of finally getting to a place where be able to say, no, I am equal, mm-hmm. which actually, now that I think about it, it kind of ties into that thing that I said about high school and not giving a fuck. Hmm. <laughs> not giving a fuck is, it's a helpful skill in life. <laughs> yes. It's very helpful. Yeah. It really is. Um, Weird. Uh, are you from Midian? What's that again? Are you from Midian? <laughs> <laughs> Why does that sound familiar? It's uh, Nightbreed. The the movie with the demons that are monsters that are misunderstood. Mm. It's great, great movie. Simon Bamford was in it. He met, he mentioned it in our interview. Yep. I met. I remember when I first came to LA, I saw Tim Curry in the grocery store. Nice. Just uh, Gelson's in Hollywood, near where I lived, and that's the thing I wanted to say I really liked, and not you know not Rocky Horror, the stuff that he usually hears. Mm, sure. mm-hmm. He just smiled this wide grin and said, "Oh, thank you, my <laughs> boy. No one ever says that." So I'm guessing as an adult now, you again have uh, a group of friends that appreciate horror with you. Only professionally. Really? Um, not, I, yeah, not. I don't have many. I don't, I don't have many friends at all socially because still I'm not really comfortable around people. If I'm working or speaking to them or entertaining them, all good. Okay. So the next two questions I'm going to ask, um, I'm going to ask what movie have you seen more times than any other? And it may, may or may not be horror. And then what's your favorite movie? And again, these, these, the answer to these might be the same or they might be different. Uh, you tell me. Uh, Exorcist is the film that I've seen the most. Mm-hmm. My f- favorite, very, very favorite movie of all time is a movie called Jesus of Montreal. Hmm. It's about a Catholic shrine that every year has a passion play and so they have this priest who's he's a philandering priest it's not very moral and he decides he wants to turn the thing on its head and really turn it have a lot of people come so he hires an act a troop of actors to do it well the actors decide to get in to do the real history and not do just the feel-good passion play mm-hmm. and what they come up with is so challenging that they do draw a lot of people yeah it plays out that way he has there are 12 people in the troop so it's yeah, it's like a um, the whole thing is like an allegory, mm-hmm. and I can also see why you might enjoy that um, from the challenging the audience uh, aspect yeah. too. Absolutely, it's yes, yes. I, I like what they do in the film to challenge the audience, mm-hmm. and I like the audience's 
digging it, but not knowing why they're digging it. Mm. Do you see any common threads about what kinds of horror you like in terms of cannibalism, occult, metaphysical? Yeah, um, I like things that uh, strip away all of the um, illusions that things are going to be all right. Um, there is uh, darkness and mist and fogs and all of these things, because only then, to me, only then, by full acceptance of those, can you move into any kind of light. So to sum that up in a simple phrase, would you say it would be the films and stories that are indifferent and malicious? Yeah, like I think in, so. indifferently malicious. Actually, I I do feel that way. Yeah, but 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 if they go further in that agenda and say, well, my agenda is to convince you that life has no meaning, that's nihilism, and I don't enjoy that. Yeah, um, that I don't was Mr. Finite. Yeah, uh, but those who say this, these are the hard parts of life, and just present it. Yeah. I like that. Any idea why you like that? It feels truthful to me. And and again, that's my truth because of the life that I've lived, but I can't have lived any other, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now that we've narrowed in on what it is that you enjoy, uh, why horror? In the sense that could you not also find some of these same things in sci-fi or what other whatever other genres you can think of? Hmm. There's not enough body fluids in those. (laughs) (laughs) That's one way to answer the question. (laughs) That is a good answer. I'm very into the idea of the body as a uh, a physical, and this for me personally, my faith, this has something to do with the incarnation. The Mm -hmm. idea that uh, the creator would choose to incarnate in a human body. A human body which, uh, you know, eats and farts and stinks and and uh, rots and does all of those things that our bodies do. <laughs> so I, I don't, I don't want to get, I don't like getting too high minded uh, so that we're sort of just floating, floating orbs. Mm. I really like things that are rooted in the physical. I think as a summary, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, or if you, if you think there's something that I've missed or there's a better wording for it. Um, but I'd say the three or four things that are really jumping out to me are, you know, you're talking about stripping away the illusions and, and showing what's truthful to you. I like you saying that. That helps me to understand what I like, actually. You said that well. Thank you. Well, I'm not done yet. <laughs> so, uh, to me, that touches on expression and communication, which you mentioned, I think, having difficulty with. So I feel like that's an, an avenue for you to say here, let me express here. Let me communicate in a way that's meaningful to me. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the movie that you started out mentioning this mm-hmm. is a good example of that. It's a weird body based cult horror film mm-hmm. with artistic intentions. And it's like the gold standard for me. So yeah, you're right. And then the other thing that I'd mention is, you know, for example, a moment ago, you mentioned um, when we said why horror and you're talking about the creator incarnated in the human body. That's Mm. interesting to me because that's validating your own self. Mm. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. That idea is absolutely. Yeah. It's it's, it's saying that the body is uh, uh, um, the body is capable despite our lowness to the ground that we are capable of embodying a hell of a lot of light 
but we're still going to sweat. We're still going to burp, you know? Mm. I, I want all of it. I don't want just the exalted, ah. <laughs> you know, I want that with a burp in there too. In the middle of the ah. Uh-uh. <laughs> Why couldn't an angel burp? What would be wrong with it? Hmm. Well, I know they don't fart because they don't have anuses. <laughs> you know what? I hadn't thought about it. There's no reason they should or belly buttons. <laughs> yeah, you're right. They could burp, though. They, they could burp. Oh, Chris. Chris, Chris. <laughs> Leave it to Chris to bring up an- the lack of angel anuses. <laughs> I, I've never actually considered whether they had anuses or not. Or uh, actually, fingers and toes, we just, well. Oh, hmm. But you know what? Okay, so here's the interesting thing, and I know we're out of time. I can't believe we talked for two hours. But the interesting thing is that most stories in mythology and in religions, when people meet angels, it's not a happy experience almost always. They're scared shitless. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because there's some other dimensional, like, just non-bipedal, crazy, batshit crazy thing with <laughs> 16 wings and 24 <laughs> eyes. And You know what I like <laughs> about that? So, and this is something, again, that I only got introduced to through Joseph Campbell and the things that I learned from researching his stuff. Uh, apparently, in Hindu and Buddhist uh, mythologies every god has two aspects the beneficial or the benevolent and the demonic and which one you see depends on whether or not you are ready oh, to yeah. receive the gift that they are coming to bestow on you oh man that's powerful yeah it is i've heard that one before yeah, I, yeah well, I like you that. know what there's something actually in the torah that kind of which says i will be to the merciful, I will show myself merciful. To the just, I will show myself just. To the unkind, I will show myself unkind. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the way you see me, huh? It's whether what what you are ready to receive hmm. or not. If you're not ready to give up something, you know. All right. So I might even say it's the frame you said on it. <laughs> but anyway, thank you for being our guest. Um, did you want to? Uh, I forget. Did we, did we even talk about what you were working on at the start of the call? No, but who cares? But here's what I do actually want to say. Sure. I mean, I'm glad to make a living doing what I love. And then when this stuff comes out, people like it or hate it. But I do want some filmmaker to remake the Phantom of the Opera. You don't have to put it in an opera house. It's public domain material, but it's the core of the story. Just take that core and make sure that Eric was born that way. He nobody threw acid in his face or some bullshit. Oh, I'm I'm beautiful, but now one side of my face is ugly. He's a freak. Mm-hmm. And let and let me play him. I keep begging every filmmaker I meet to do this, but it's so hard to take the blinders off and go, oh well, it has to be in an opera house. No, just rip it out of the frame. It's public domain. But wasn't that yeah. what Quasimodo was? Yeah, Quasimodo was fun. He's a more tragic figure. Eric is a little more malevolent. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. So you want, yeah, you want less victim. Yeah. Okay. I, uh, yeah. I did an episode on my podcast where I did an excerpt from uh, Phantom of the Opera called All the Wounded Monsters. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, I realized, damn, I really want to play Eric. <laughs> That's the only thing I want to say is put that pitch out there. It's public domain and people could put it, put the story anywhere they want, but they can't do it unless they let me play Eric. Well, hopefully, uh, as they say, from your lips to the ears of God. Uh, yeah, maybe somebody will hear that and get in touch with you exactly on that. Um, so again, thank you for being our guest. Um, 
And thank you, anybody out there listening. Again, please do come visit us at horrormakesushappy.com. We'll have a schedule posted there to show who we're interviewing, as well as the people we'd like to interview. Um, if you can help us connect with any of those people, or if you know somebody you'd like to have added to the list, let us know. You can also become a Patreon supporter or link to our social media. Um, can, in general, just come let us know how we're doing. Horrormakesushappy.com. 